this morning. It's a day of double celebration and we get to celebrate our country and we also this morning get to celebrate a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that is greater and that's an awesome thing. If you don't know me, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here and a member of the preaching team and we're glad that you're joining us this morning. We've been in a series called Wandering where we've been watching God's people of the Old Testament, the Hebrews, the Israelites be rescued out of Egypt and brought through the wilderness eventually to get to the land that was promised to their forefather, Abraham. And right now, we are in the book of Leviticus, which is one of those books that we love to skip over. And we don't like to read it, and we especially don't like to preach on it, so we're getting into some sticky stuff. We're covering some of the key events and key themes in the book of Leviticus, then Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Steve's going to kind of get more into this in the next couple of weeks. But one of these themes we've been seeing is that God gave his Old Testament people a variety of ceremonies and celebrations and rituals. And all of, all of these accoutrements and the tabernacle were given to God's people to teach them about God. To draw them into relationship with him. And to, these, these symbols had meaning to them. They were not meaningless and we're going to see more of that this morning. Now, how many of you have heard the phrase, you are what you eat? Right? We've heard that ridiculous phrase. And then there's, you know, the cheesy story of the guy who wanted to become rich. So he decided he would only eat rich foods. And so every night he'd eat cheesecake and bacon-wrapped scallops and chocolate cake. And at the end of the year, he wasn't rich, but he was fat. We are what we eat. That's kind of a silly phrase, but there actually is some truth to that, isn't there? Because you can look around the globe at various cultures and what they eat tells you quite a bit about that people group. It tells you where they live geographically. What foods are they able to grow? What animals are they able to raise? What kind of lifestyle do they have? I mean, here in America, our diet was built by pioneers and farmers. And so now we all have desk jobs and we're getting fat and we're wondering why. Maybe having a huge stack of pancakes in the morning isn't what we need nowadays. But what we have as a diet, what we have as food, teaches us uh, about a culture. Is this a rich culture or a poor culture? How much meat can this group of people afford? How many fresh, fresh vegetables do they have? And beyond that, what we eat shapes our lives. We have two big choices, right? We have healthy food and unhealthy food. And those choices matter. If we choose to eat unhealthy food, we could be shaving decades off of our lives. We could be giving ourselves severe health problems if we continually choose those unhealthy choices. Some of you, food is a very quick part of your life. You want those things that are microwavable. You throw it in the oven for 15 minutes, right? You set it in the Instapot in the morning. You come home and you just scarf it down because you got to go, 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 go. Right, you gotta, we just gotta scarf this down, so-and-so goes to soccer practice, so-and-so goes to their second job. Food is quick, food is just a necessity. Some of you are on the other side in that, man, food is what brings you together. 
that you guys spend like an hour in the kitchen, you're all working on different bits, and you sit down at the dinner table and you enjoy that together, and you linger at the dinner table. Right? Food is an intricate part of our lifestyles. It says a lot about who we are. It can even shape our lives. And today we're going to see in Leviticus chapter 11 that the way God's people eat, the way God's people eat symbolizes and supports the type of community we should be. The way God's people eat symbolizes and supports the type of community we should be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning to worship you. I pray that your word make a deep impact here today. Holy Spirit, you would teach us that these words would be yours and not my own. Help us to know and remember the reality of what you are doing through your people. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you aren't already there, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 11. This is one of those chapters that people read and they go, what? Because it's about clean and unclean animals. So we're going to kind of buzz through it. And I'm going to try to simplify it, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about it. So in Leviticus chapter 11, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, this is verse 1, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals on the earth. And so then there's going to be specific requirements of what you can eat and what you can't eat. And in those first eight verses, verses 1 through 8, We see that you can eat animals that part the hoof. They have a hoof that parts in two little bits and chew the cud. So I think I have a cheesy little graphic up there. Examples, you can eat cows, you can eat goats, but you shouldn't eat rabbits, you shouldn't eat pigs because, well, rabbits chew vegetable matter, but they don't have cloven hooves. And pigs have cloven hooves, but they don't chew the cud. This is going to make sense, I promise. Okay, I'm getting some blank stares, like, what are we doing here? It's going to make sense. In Leviticus 11, verses 9 through 12, the ocean animals are clean. They're good to eat if they have fins and scales. Fins and scales. So, uh, salmon, go for it. Bass, go for it. Catfish, no go. They have skin, they don't have scales. Or lobster. I know we like our lobster, or most of us do, right? Lobster is not kosher. They, weren't, they wouldn't be allowed to eat ocean creatures like that. In verses 13 through 19, we see more intricate examples of birds you cannot eat. And we have previous chapters that obviously detail the birds that they did eat. And this, uh, the general theme is you shouldn't eat meat-eating birds. So no cormorants, no seabirds like herons, uh, no birds of prey like hawks or owls. Oddly enough, ostriches are in this category. They just are kind of out of place, so you don't eat those. And bats are in there because this is before we had the modern classifications of mammals and birds, so it flies, it's a bird. And bats obviously do not fit the category of these other birds, and bats are gross, right? Some people think this pandemic came from a bat, so bats, the bats are a no-go. Uh, in verses 20 through 23, it's talking about flying insects that crawl, and we as Americans go, why would you eat insects anyways? 
some people around the world do. And among these insects, the only ones you can eat are basically grasshoppers, locusts, and crickets. I've never had those, but I, I do know that some people eat those. In verses 24 through 28, you're not to touch the carcasses of unclean animals. So if you see like a dead lion or a dead pig, you aren't allowed to touch that. If you do, you become unclean until you can be cleansed. And you aren't supposed to eat animals with paws. So sorry, you can't eat your cats. And then in verses 29 through 38, in 41 through 43, we get to the swarming things. Ooh, say with me the swarming things. These are the things that your wives hate. You go through this list, okay? You have basically any type of rodent. They would sneak into a house. You have tiny little lizards and snakes and all those things that people go, ew. Those are the swarming things. And not only are you not supposed to eat these, but they're actually requirements that if they sneak into your house and they fall into a vessel and they make that vessel unclean, there's ways that you can then make that vessel clean again. Once again, getting blank stares, it's gonna make sense in a moment. And here's what draws this whole chapter together in verses 44 through 47. Verses 44 through 47. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, and you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beasts and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. So at the core of all of these seemingly ridiculous requirements on what animals you can eat and can't eat, can touch and can't touch, the core of it is God is holy and his people are to be holy. And when we use this word holy, we mean that God as creator is completely different and set apart from all creation. He's higher than every living being and thing. He is different. He is set apart. And because he is holy, he calls his people to be holy. And specifically from other verses that we've already covered, we see that for God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, they were to be set apart from the other nations. That God was preserving his people. He told them, don't intermarry with these other people groups. They'll lead you away into idolatry. And God even gave them a way of eating that would set them apart from these other people groups. You notice with a lot of the differences in what animals you can eat and can't eat, some of them are very obvious issues of cleanliness, animals that maybe today we still wouldn't eat because we say that's gross, you could get a disease from that, but some of them aren't. Some of these distinctions are just setting this pattern that here's the pattern of animal you should eat. If it doesn't fit the pattern, separate yourselves from it. This dietary law was designed to keep God's people separated from the other peoples around them, that they would be separate, that they would be holy, they would be set apart, that they would be preserved as a people group 
so that God could one day bring the Messiah through the Israelites to be a blessing to all the nations. The way God's people eat symbolizes and supports the type of community we should be. And all of this, this act of clean and unclean, clean and unclean, was teaching the Israelites that they needed God to cleanse them. I mean, they were continually becoming unclean. Right, like mouse falls out of the ceiling on you, oh, you're now unclean, right? And we, we could go through Leviticus, and we could go through these other parts of the Pentateuch and see all of these strange ways that you could become ceremonially unclean. This is all drilling this idea into their minds that you are unclean. And that which is unclean cannot approach God who is completely clean, completely holy. You need him to clean you so that you can approach him. He was teaching them a principle. And the clean and unclean laws symbolized and supported holiness for Israel. It was a picture of holiness, but functionally it also helped keep the Israelites separate from other people if they actually obeyed these cleanliness laws. So what about us? Many of us here are Christians, and if you've had debates or conversations with unbelievers, probably specifically atheists, on the issue of morality, believe it or not, this passage actually comes up. Because as we, if we as Christians say, well, we affirm the sexual ethic of the Bible, we affirm the justice ethic of the Bible, often the retort that you'll get back is, well, well, why do you eat pigs? How many of you have had this, heard this before? Yeah, a few of you have had this happen to you. They'll say, well, why do you eat pigs? Because, man, right here in the same books that you're quoting, they say that homosexuality is wrong and adultery is wrong and slavery is wrong. You're also violating this one. It says don't eat pigs. They try to see it as an inconsistency, but there's a reason. There's a very specific reason that we are not under these laws that were dietary. There's a very specific reason, and we're going to see that reason in Acts chapter 10. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 10. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Acts, it's a highlight history of some of the early years of the church. And here we see a pivotal moment. In the first few verses, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 10, we meet this guy named Cornelius. And Cornelius is not a Jew. He's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. He is outside of the covenant community of Jews. But he loves God. He seeks to honor God. He gives generously to those who are poor, and he prays. And in verses 1 through 8, we see that an angel is sent to Cornelius. And this angel says, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And this angel instructs him to send men to a specific city to find this guy named Simon. We would know as Simon Peter. So for those of us that are familiar with the book of Acts, the story of God's word, we know that Simon Peter was one of Jesus' disciples who then became a church leader. So this Gentile 
this Roman centurion gets a vision of this angel telling him, hey, send some guys to go find Peter. And right about the same time, Peter has a vision. In verse 9, it says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So Peter receives this vision on the housetop of this blanket falling down, and it's full of all sorts of animals, many of which the Jews were not allowed to eat, and God says, kill and eat. Now, for the rednecks in the room, you would have probably gone, yeehaw, let's let's get to this, right? But for Peter being a Jew, this is a no-go. And even today, if you talk to a Muslim or a Jew who's grown up abstaining from certain meats, they will find those meats revolting. But God says, do not call unclean what I have made clean. Do not call common what I have made clean. And there's a reason for this vision, because right after this, those three guys sent by Cornelius show up. And so Peter goes with these guys to visit Cornelius, and they begin to talk. And Peter is actually willing to enter their house. You see, the Jews were not supposed to associate with Gentiles. And yet Peter realizes, no, I can go into their house. I can associate with these people because God is removing this division of clean and unclean. And in verse 34 and 35, it says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation... Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That the gospel is not just for Jews, but it is for all people. That just as God promised to Abraham way back in the beginning that he would bless all nations through his descendants. And so Peter shares the gospel with them. They believe and the Holy Spirit falls on them and they begin speaking in tongues. And Peter and his Jewish friends that are with him are excited and they're also a bit confused. Because the Holy Spirit is being given to people who are not Jewish, but who did believe in Jesus Christ. And in verse 45, it says, And the, and the believers from among the circumcised, so the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. That God shows no partiality. And what we see is that the gospel went out to all of the Roman Empire and beyond that. And the majority of us here in this room are not ethnically Jewish. But yet we believe in Jesus Christ. We have found freedom and forgiveness from Jesus Christ. 
So we're not under those cleanliness laws. We, are not, we do not have to eat kosher as Christians, but our freedom from ceremonial cleanliness symbolizes and supports us sharing the good news with all people groups. Our freedom from saying, well, you can eat this, but you can't eat this, is not just because God says, hey, pork's delicious, have fun. But it symbolizes the type of community we should be, that there should be no barrier keeping us from reaching all peoples across the world. There should be no barrier. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is for all who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And we see that as we had this church built in the first century of Jews and Gentiles who believed, there was tension around the Jews who wanted to continue following these rituals and the Gentiles that had never followed these rituals. And we get verses like this in Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. That all of these ceremonies and these limitations on what you can eat are taken away so that we can effectively reach all people across the world. That we can sit at the dinner table of anyone and have conversations with them and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. The way God's people eat symbolizes and supports the type of community we should be. And believe it or not, even our main culture does this that the way we eat symbolizes and supports the type of community we want to be. Here in Maine, we value this thing called food self-sufficiency. And if you aren't familiar with that term, here's the test. I would argue the majority of people in this room value one of or all of or some of the next four things. Gardening, hunting, fishing, or foraging. That As Mainers, we really appreciate not being 100% reliant on Hannaford's or supply chains or the government, right? So we like the ability to go out into the woods and to take some fish home, get some meat, pick some blueberries, raise vegetables in our backyard. We like that act of self-sufficiency or having chickens. But I would argue that what we do as Mainers, for the majority of people here, there are a few of you that really have got it down and you might actually be saving money with how you hunt, like you, you, know, you process the animal yourself, or some of you garden and you preserve it really well. The majority of us, we do not save a cent doing this stuff. Let's just be honest, it's a ceremony, right? Because you order a ton of seeds in the middle of the winter or spring, you plant them all, and you're busy, you got a nine to five job, so you know, the animals eat most of it. And then somewhere near the end or middle of summer, you have more summer squash and cucumbers than you know what to do with. So what do you do? You leave them in the entryway. You aren't paying for your grocery bill. You're just giving us cucumbers or chickens, right? Like most people I know who have chickens have done the math. You are not saving money because either you don't have enough eggs, you still have to go buy some, or you have too many eggs and so you give them away. And also chickens are actually expensive. You have to feed them. You have to build them a house. And if you don't take care of that well, I mean, every creature on the planet wants to eat them around here. And fishing, don't get me started on fishing. I like to trick myself into thinking, oh man, I'm saving money because I take home a meal's worth of fish like twice a year. Do you know how much I spend on fishing gear? It's insane. (laughs) I don't even want to know how much I spend on fishing gear. The point is that as Mainers, we do this more as a ceremony 
because we, we, we think it's important that our kids know where food comes from. It's important that we are not 100% reliant on the grocery store. And it is functional because if everything hit the fan, we would have the skills and the abilities to be able to provide some food for our families. That this element to how we eat as Mainers symbolizes and supports the type of community we want to be. We want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to rely on outsiders as Mainers. And the same is true of the way that God has structured his community, that the way God's people eat symbolizes and supports the type of community we should be. For God's people Israel in the Old Testament is that they were holy and set apart. Separate yourselves from other nations. And so I've given you a new way to eat, to be an extra barrier of separation from these other people groups. For, but for us here who are new covenant believers, who are new covenant believers, we are set apart to reach the world. We're still set apart as holy, but we've been given a new way to eat, to better interact with the nations of this world. But we do not forget cleanliness. We don't forget cleanliness. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus calls the people together and he says, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus makes a pretty bold statement. He says it's not about the food that you eat that defiles you. That was all symbolic. What you eat does not affect your heart. I mean, unless you have cholesterol issues, right? But when we're talking about the heart as the inner man, what you eat does not affect the inner man. It goes into your stomach, and it goes, as Jesus says, out the other end. But what defiles us as people is what's coming out of our hearts. That we have all manner of evil thoughts and desires that swell up in us. And that evil just drips off of our hands and we do things that we should not do and comes off our lips and we say things that we should not say. That what truly defiles man is an internal force, a wickedness that is deep set into our hearts and affects our whole body. It's not a matter of meat and insects. It's a matter of the heart. And this is why the work of Jesus is so powerful that God himself came down 
And he took the penalty for our rebellion, the penalty for all that sin that wells up in us. And that Jesus promises to cleanse us from our iniquities, from our sins, to wash us pure as snow, that when we believe in him, we are made right with God, that God looks at us. He no longer sees our sin, but he sees cleanliness. And we are welcomed as sons. No longer is there that separation of unclean stay away, but you are my son. Come and be with me. That when we believe in God, he accepts us because Jesus Christ paid it all for us on the cross. And he had complete victory over the grave. The true cleanliness and uncleanliness is a heart issue. It's a sin issue, not a food issue. And, and deep down, we all know that sin defiles us. Now, some of us might have consciences that are so seared, we don't feel bad about things that are objectively bad. But we feel dirty when we sin. We feel dirty when we hurt the people around us. We know that we need to be cleansed. And dirty people cannot approach a holy God. But that God came down. And he made a way so that we could approach him. That is what we put our hope in. That's what we believe in as Christians. And so our response is, if you don't believe here, listening today or in this room, believe, be cleansed. There is no way to scrape that muck off of your heart without a divine work by an all-powerful God. But for those of us that are Christians in this room, we should not forget why we're able to eat lobsters today, why we're able to eat hot dogs today, why you're able to eat that steak that is just full of blood. There's a reason that we as Christians get to partake in that. There's a meaning behind it that the way God's people eat symbolizes and supports the type of community we should be. And so I'm so glad that this happened to be the 4th of July because most of us are going to go out and we're going to eat hot dogs and we're going to eat steaks that have blood in them. And some of you that are really rich might be eating lobster or you might be eating clams or all manner of unclean things, right? We're going to be eating them today. And yes, enjoy that. But when we look at that as Christians, we shouldn't go, oh man, this is great. I'm glad that I'm not Jewish. But rather, we should remember that there's a reason that we eat this. That God has set us apart to reach the whole world with the gospel, to teach people from every tribe, every tongue, every people group about Jesus. And so those unclean foods that are now clean that we eat are a symbol of our mission, that we are set apart by God to reach others. And so my challenge today is that when you sit down and you eat that hot dog or that lobster or whatever it is that would have been unclean for God's Old Testament people, is to meditate on the reality that we have a job to do that that freedom has been given to us so that we can reach others. And my second challenge, and this is especially for those of you that are parents, this is a great opportunity to teach our kids. Because just as for the Israelites, when their kids said, well, why can't I eat this fish? Why can't I eat that animal? Well, there's a reason. Well, God is holy and we are to be holy. We are to be set apart. And so for us, we can put meat on the table and say, you know what? We eat this because God has sent us out into the whole world to spend time with and reach all types of people with the gospel. It can be a teachable moment. 
Now, before we transition to another symbol, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you that your word isn't meaningless. That even in the concepts we struggle to wrap our minds around, that seem alien and foreign to us, there's great intentionality. So I pray the way that we eat would draw us into a better understanding of our responsibility before you as Christians. And I pray that that need to be cleansed would draw people today to believe in you, to trust in you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So just another example of perfect timing today is communion. And the Lord's Supper is another way that we as Christians eat to symbolize and support the type of community we should be. That the elements in this tiny little plastic cup, right, bread and juice, symbolize the reality of Christ's sacrifice that draws us together as believers. So first, you can open that little compartment that has the wafer in it. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of, oh, do this in remembrance of me. So when we look at this, we remember that body that was broken. We remember the suffering that Christ went through for us, his people. Let's do this to remember him. Lord, you were beaten. You experienced the full wrath of the Father so that we don't have to. Thank you for that sacrifice that we have fellowship together. Lord Jesus, we pray, amen. And when we look at the cup, Jesus said this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in his blood. It's the new covenant in his blood. So not only does this symbolize the blood that Christ lost on the cross, the blood that when we put our faith in him, washes us clean. But this also supports the body. That we come together as members of one covenant, one people brought together in relationship with God and each other. And this is a, this is a symbol of our covenant together. That we are God's people gathered here together today as Christians. So this is the blood that is the covenant. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Oh Lord. Uh, we live in a culture where we're less familiar with symbols but you have given us symbols that are meaningful. Symbols that connect us with generations of believers before us. 
centuries of people who have followed after you, that have found forgiveness in you. So help us to remember today, to celebrate today. And may the reality of a gospel for all peoples, no matter their ethnicity, no matter their culture, may that drive us to speak truth to the people around us, to love them, to teach them about you. In the powerful name of Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you.